What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is the hilarious John Archer. John is an award-winning comedy magician from the UK who you may know as the first magician to fool Penn & Teller on the first season of Fool Us, when it was still filmed in Britain. Many people know him as an award-winning writer and actor for mainstream comedy and magic programs in the UK. I was lucky enough to meet him and see him perform both at Magic Live and at the Magic Castle the following week, and I thoroughly enjoyed both of those shows, which we talk about. In the episode, we talk a lot about comedy, and comedy writing and collaborating while creating material, reading an audience and adapting in the moment, and more. As you'll hear near the end of the episode, John challenges me to get booked for the close-up room in the Magic Castle, and I plan on following through. I've already started working on the set. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com, and if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out the Ambassador Program on Art of Magic. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print, and you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly if you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. If you love the show and want to show some support, head over to patreon.com slash magicalthinking. Patreon helps me get better equipment for the show, as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. In return, you'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, tips on style and fashion, and you can spend some one-on-one time with me. Again, that's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash magical thinking. Anyway, get into the episode. John was an absolute delight, and I had such a pleasure sitting down with him, and I'm so glad that he listens to the podcast and took the time to do one with me. Let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com and get into the episode. This is John Archer. Enjoy. If you just go out and walk back in again, like none of this has been done. Yeah, probably. <laughs> just, just pretend. I don't know. Just, uh, yeah, it just all happened. It came together. Well, I got to be careful of the chair, too, because I'm not getting the chair with <laughs> Yeah, well, you're not doing all of that. I'm fine. If anything goes wrong, it's going to be your fault. That's correct. How's your run at the castle been this week so far? It's um, yeah, it's been good. I'm enjoying it. Just been lots of people coming in because of the, because of the lineup. Yeah, it's so. a great, it's a crazy week. I don't think I have ever. No, I know I have never been to the castle this many times in a week, and I don't plan on doing it again anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, I've seen you at the bar. You're drinking a lot. Yeah. Are we recording now? Yeah. <laughs> you do that every time, don't you? <laughs> every time. It's clever. I should have realised when you set everything up. <laughs> Which took 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 20 minutes. Yeah. It looks fantastic the way you've just got that mic stretched across the table hanging. It's doing its best. <laughs> this arm is cheap. Uh, I'm surprised it's lasted as long as it has. Yeah, but I mean... Is that, did you buy that for the purpose or is it off an old angle pose lamp? No, <laughs> I bought it for the purpose. All right. So yeah. It looks like you just wrecked a lamp and stuck a mic on the end of it. Yeah. I don't want to ruin the listener's view of how professional these podcasts are. <laughs> but it does look a little bit like, did you have Meccano over here? Did you ever have Meccano sets? No. Uh, we had them when we were a kid, like little sets, that you, construction sets with little bits and you 
metal and you screw them all together and make cranes and things. It looks like that. That it's sounds impressive. pretty cool. Yeah. When you uh, when you do Johnny Thompson, um, he'll probably have a better method. <laughs> he normally has a better method oh, for everything. Well, now I know because this is my first time in the Nirvana, the Nirvana, so I had no idea what the surroundings were going to be like. So I might bring my stand for the mic for Johnny. Yeah, although every room is different. I mean, not all of them have this, you know, leather walls and things. Yeah. Heated leather floors. Yeah, yeah. Leather floors, leather walls, and chains. <laughs> it's all white for some reason. Yeah. 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 It's, nice. it's soundproof too. Yeah. I haven't slept yet. Just stared at the ceiling, panicking. You know. <laughs> Cardini's going to rush in and murder me. <laughs> we are recording now, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. I wish I'd been funnier earlier. <laughs> Do you have that thought a lot? Yeah. I do think, you really? I think comedians often have that thought of to do something and think, oh, well, they're very funny. Especially when you do radio interviews or television. You, when you do your act, it's not so bad because you've honed it and you, you've got rid of all the stuff that isn't funny. But when you do off-the-cuff stuff and unplanned stuff, I think we all, you know, Quite often, I've got a friend who's a comedian, and he'll say, was that funny? Was that funny? And I'll, I'll do the same thing to him. I'll say, was that funny there? It's harder to tell, when, especially when there's no audience. Yeah. I mean, if you laugh politely, that's nice, but I don't know if it's real. I mean, I've heard you laugh at some terrible stuff on the, the other podcast, so I don't trust your... I'm a generous laugh. I don't, I don't <laughs> trust your sense of humour anymore. <laughs> uh, Nor should you. No, no, exactly. You were laughing at Chris Corn. What was going on there? No, I like Chris Corn actually. He was good. I enjoyed that one. Uh, did you do Chris Corn? Yeah. yeah. That's a relief. I thought I'd been listening <laughs> to someone else. <laughs> uh, somebody else's podcast I've listened to. Oh, yeah? Are you a podcast person? Yeah. Some yeah, people are. I do. I don't listen to... Uh, I listen to a few magic ones, actually. I listen to yours. Um, I listen to um, Scott. What's his name? Wells? Yeah, Scott Wells is... Thank you. I know Scott Wells. Why did I forget that? But I listen to Scott Wells every now and again when, when there's something going on. I think, oh, that might be interesting. Uh, I listen to Penn's Sunday School. It makes me feel good about myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> what else do I listen to? But then the rest are sort of probably non-magical things like This American Life, Radio yeah. Labs... Um, I listen to Scamapalooza, do you know that one? No, I don't. Nicholas J. Johnson in Australia. And okay. he's, he's sort of... He's sort of a... He, he specialises in scams and hustlery type stuff. So he interview, But he interviews interesting people about, you know, psychological things. And he interviews non-magicians about new theories on how we look at stuff. So I, I listen to him regularly. Is this when you're travelling or...? Yeah. Well, you see... I, in the UK, when you when you're working, it's not like in America. In America, I think if you're if you're gigging, you, you get on a lot of flights, yeah, right, because it's so big. Never fly anywhere in England. Just everything's you know within you know. The most I might have to travel is three or four hundred miles maximum. Usually, you know, it's a few hundred miles. So I drive everywhere, and you know, I just keep all my props in the trunk of the car, and uh, it's nice and easy. So yeah, I just I save the podcast for then, really, and just put one on and listen to it. Are we recording now? Yeah. yeah. 
How much are you thinking about your material? I'm not. I'm thinking about whether that was funny just then. Um, how often am I thinking about my material? Mm-hmm. Um, I think every day I, I uh, have little thoughts about it. Uh, you know, I'm always... I wouldn't say I'm always thinking about it because I'm thinking about lots of other stuff as well. But mm-hmm. uh, certainly every day I might just have a little ponder about something. And then there's some days when I'll spend all day just, you know, trying to solve it. But it can take... <clears throat> it's really weird because it can take... I suppose... I'm not the same as everybody else. Some people will solve problems quicker, but it can say, take me months and months to, you know, iron out a tiny little thing. You know, a little detail in a routine can take me months to get it to a point where I think, well, I'm happy with that, and it works. Um, and sometimes they're not even a magical moment. It's just a moment where I want something funny to happen. Yeah. And I can't think, <clears throat> you know, I can't think of how to get it to work. Or something happens in a routine accidentally, and then I'll just strive to think how can I make that accidental thing happen all the time so um, you know you see, you saw my parlour show didn't you yes you know the Laura Buxton trick mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the moment when the guy says I don't like the the ace and he throws it away yeah and then I throw away the ace from his deck and say that's annoying isn't it and um, that ha- that happened I, I broke that routine on two supporting um, like opening you don't say support do you say opening for somebody I was opening for a comedian friend on tour a big sort of theatre tour in the UK uh, and I was breaking that routine I'd sort of been doing it for a few months but I just thought if I do it on the tour by the end of the tour it'll be solid and uh, right early on in the tour as I was spreading my cards and asking him to check them he just went hang on a minute go back so I sort of went back in the spread a little bit and then he went oh no it's alright and then I carried on so when he did it I just had lived and I went, hang on a minute, go back. And then he did. And I went, no, it's okay, carry on. And then I looked at him and I said, that's annoying, isn't it? And it got a massive laugh because I think it just, the audience just suddenly felt like they were in my shoes and could understand how it was annoying for somebody to do that to a magician. And I thought, how can I get it like that? And I tried lots of different, but first of all, I was just trying to get the guy to stop me and go back, which is what had happened. Mm-hmm. And I tried lots of ways like, deliberately hiding some cards from him so he'd think oh he didn't show me them but a lot of times spectators get up on stage and they're too polite so that you know they just let me do that they just let me get away with it very rarely would the you know comment on it um and i you know i tried i tried you know stuff like that and i tried i tried stressing how important it was he checked it so you know you're doing this for the audience it's not for me you're you know you're doing it on their behalf you've got to make sure it's every you see every card and you're happy and still it wouldn't happen and then uh, a bit later on in the run of me trying to get this thing to work and trying different, you know, handling of my cards and trying to make him pick me up on something, one guy said, hang on a minute, and he stopped at the Ace of Spades. And because he, he wasn't, he didn't obviously use cards very often, because the Ace of Spades has that big spade on it, mm-hmm. he went, what's that? And I went, it's the Ace of Spades, it's just what it is, it has a big pattern on it. Anyway, I said, I said, if you don't like it, I'll get rid of it. And I threw it away. And then I did the same with his deck and went, you know, that's annoying. Uh, and then it sort of hit me. All I've got to do is give him, you know, sh- so what I do now, and the audience aren't really aware of it, is there's a little smiley face mm-hmm. and an asterisk on the card at both indices. And when I get to that one, I just keep that one there as I carry on spreading. He just sees this little smiley face. And now and again, they might say, there's a, you've drawn something on it. But quite often, there's a got that you know point and then I just sort of say oh you don't like the the little pattern on the ace of spades so the audience think 
he just doesn't like the airs of spades. I'll throw it away. So, but that took me, you know, two or three months of just messing around. And, and then when the answer comes, it seems really obvious. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. But nobody, I talked to loads of magicians, none of them, you know, could suggest it and played around with stuff. Um, so things like that. And they end into that routine, knowing which, I mean, there's a three-way out at the end. And I played with lots of different three-way outs that felt like they were outs. Felt too much like it wasn't part of the routine until I got that, you know, just that moment of this, a single picture in the card and I take it out before they name anything. The other outs, they'd sort of name it and then I'd reveal mm-hmm. either a double-faced card or something written on the back of the envelope. So, yeah, it's all those little details. It's not always how the trick works. Sometimes it's just the, you know, the the details of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm always thinking about it. Just always got. I've got th- sort of three routines in my head that I'm working on at the moment. Somebody singing outside, that's nice. And um, so three routines. I think one of them might not ever see the light of day because I, I I like the method more than I actually like the trick. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, the method's cool. It's an electronics thing. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like it could could ever be electronics. And uh, but I just, I'm not that, I'm not a massive fan of the routine of how it's, you know, why I'm doing it. Whereas I've got an, another two, one sort of not a lottery prediction, but based on the lottery, uh, and another one which is a bit like a um, sneak thief. You know, people draw things on cards, but the, the right words, and I quite like that one. So those two things, I'm constantly thinking about. Now the the method for both of them are strong and I'm happy that it all works. So now I'm just thinking, you know, why I'm doing it and what yeah. the story is and what the lines are. And that's what takes more time than, you know, coming up with a method of the trick, really. Yeah. I ask because I, I'm, for some reason, my creative juices have been flowing recently. And I'm, it like, when I'm not thinking about something specific, like, oh, I got to, do my laundry or I'm yeah. making a pot of coffee or something. I'm just like, my head's just full of magic ideas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, most of them are awful, <laughs> but you know, they're there and they're swirling around and every once in a while I'll go, Oh, mm, that's neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just, I just wondered if, you know, when you're, when you're on the road and you're gigging, if you're still just, yeah, yeah. All the time, really, you know, it can be quite annoying cause I can go, you know, I can go out for a, you know, go out for a meal with my wife or something, or, you know, she's chatting to me and suddenly she'll notice I'm just sort of staring and, she, and she's going, are you listening to me? And I'm going, sorry, I was just thinking about a trick. But that happens a lot. Yeah. I just, you know, or, or you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just see something and you suddenly start going, oh, maybe I could do that. And then you're away. I went to see Cockfield last week and I can't remember what happened, but suddenly I started thinking about a totally different trick. So he's doing one trick and I'm thinking about how, how this other, it was an illusion idea I had. Um, you know, and, and so I just I'm going to stop it. Watch this. <laughs> stop thinking about something else. But yeah, so I, I think when you get an idea like that, and you think, "Oh, that could be good," you certainly, it's, you know, if it's what you do for a living, it's really hard to get your mind off and start thinking about other stuff. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, just goes. What do you do to plug back in? Try and stay present, if anything. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking about a magic trick. Um, <laughs> Um, to plug myself into what normal human life? Yeah, just to just to become present again. 
Uh, I think I've got to be doing. So- I've got to be doing so- something. You know, I I'm, I used to play golf. I haven't played for about eighteen months. Golf was the thing that I found that I could that I, I stopped thinking about anything when I played golf. I just enjoyed. I, I'm not a good golfer, but I just enjoyed the walk. I enjoyed the craziness of it. I enjoyed the company, and you know. So that used to be something that really took my mind off it. But other than that, you know, if I sit and if I sit and watch a good movie, you know, something good on Netflix or something, and I'm into it, then I can, you know, I can not switch off. If I'm engaged in something, then uh, then I won't be. Or if I'm, you know, if I'm with good company and I'm having a good time, then I'm not going to drift off. That makes it sound like it's bad when I'm having dinner with my <laughs> wife, doesn't it? Um, <coughs> But no, but just some, you know, sometimes. I suppose even when I'm with people, sometimes your mind just starts wandering. But yeah, it's not, it's not an issue. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, you don't, you don't have to start laying me on a couch and saying, "So how do you get back to normal life, Mister Archer?" Um, that was meant to be the impression of a psychiatrist. It sounded more like Johnny Thompson on on drugs. But anyway, uh, yeah. So just doing stuff, really. Yeah. Stops me thinking about magic. But I like thinking about magic. It's not an issue. Yeah. I haven't got a problem. I can cope with it. <laughs> I, I'm a recovering addict. <laughs> yeah, I get that feeling. Um, <laughs> how do you how do you put um, a routine together? Like, besides just something happening, I mean, do you go up and just do the method, or do you find a story? How do you choose... Do you know what? It's funny because um, I just did a little podcast with Lovick, just a short one, mm-hmm. uh, John Lovick, and he asked about that same question. And the, um, and the answer is there isn't one set route for me. Sometimes it'll be I like the idea of a story, mm-hmm. and I like the idea of a trick. So the, the Laura Buxton one, which is one of, I say it's one of the most current. It takes me a couple of years for a routine, to, you know, for me to start doing it to when I feel it's finished. I'm quite slow like that. Um, that one, I liked a trick that Pat Page used to do, which is in his book. I think he calls it the Soldier's Card Trick, which was just a card matching thing. He used to just use one deck of cards, give half to the other person, they both shuffle, and they both turn over mates, like three clubs, three of spades. Then he swapped decks, you have mine, I have yours, do it again. And they still keep matching. And I used to love that little routine. I just, I, I just thought it's nice and clean and fair, and it's it's quite baffling, you know. Um, but he didn't really have a story to it, and he didn't he didn't really have an end. He used to sort of do it as a bit of business, and then he'd, he'd keep the person up and do something else with it. Um, but I always fancied doing that. But I, I would never have done it really when Pat Page was still alive. I just thought it's a nice little thing I might play around with one time. And then I went to Ripley's Believe It or Not in London. We were we were doing a TV show and we were filming some stuff in there and sort of between filming I, I sort of went and had a wander around and I saw this little video screen playing of the Laura Buxton story the coincidence and and I was just fascinated I genuinely was fascinated by it and I thought you know why not link that coincidence trick with that coincidence story and to be honest there is no apart from the fact that the trick I'm doing appears to be a coincidence although obviously it isn't uh, there isn't any real link between that story and the trick other mm-hmm. than it's a coincidence. But it works really well sort of doing that, you know, you know, telling that story and justifying why you want to do this. And people sort of slightly go for it. The thing that made, the thing that really helped that trick is, um, is coming back to Laura Buxton at the end, which 
Originally, I never did, and um, it was Michael Weber who saw me do it. Um, where were we? Um, I think we we all did a show for the Berlin Magic Circle. Um, we're all doing bits. There's a few of us: um, Luke Germain, me, and Michael Webb, and a few other people. And I, somebody turned the shower on. Um, and I did, I did that trick. And it the end was I, I, three cards matched, and then I asked them to name one of the cards, and I predicted it. But I didn't go back to the Laura Buxton story. I just said, you know, there's one more thing. You know, mm -hmm. I, I've got a prediction. And. Uh, and it was Weber that just sometimes people just have to say very simple things to you, and it, you know. And he just said, "I think you need to go back to Laura Buxton at the end of that story. It needs to go back to that story." And he was right, of course. It's just like if I'm telling that story, you need to return. So now it returns to Laura Buxton, and I love the little bit where I tell him, you know, it's all true, and then I rang her up. This is all lies from now on. I love the honesty of that moment. I do too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, re I really like that, and it, it doesn't get a massive laugh, but I like. That was just for you. <laughs> it, well, it is sort of for me, and it does. It gets enough that I'll keep it in. It gets enough of a laugh that it, I'll keep it in. It, it doesn't, you know. It gets like one of those knowing chuckles from people, which I like. Um, and then, you know, and then it goes back to the Laura books and, and the made-up bit of the story that I've added at the end. Um, so yeah, um, that that's one way that trick came about from a story and a trick that I quite like. Sometimes it can be purely. Uh, I see a method and then I think how how could I you know how could I use that and do something that's original mm -hmm. so Magic Live I saw the big um, the big bottle of coke that you know the bottle of orange juice that turns into a giant bottle of coke did you see that? I did not see that it's a wonderful wonderful prop but you sort of you have a little bottle of uh, orange juice and you place it into a into a paper bag and then you know do your magical heebie-jeebies and you pull out a, a full-size large sort of liter and a half bottle of coke but it's full of liquid it's not you know it's not a you know collapsible one or anything it's solid you can you can sort of bang it on the table and the orange juice is a genuine bottle of orange juice as well and then you can tear the bag up but I saw that prop and I thought well you know if I do it I don't just want to turn a bottle of orange juice into a bottle of coke what do mm -hmm. I want to do with it yeah um, and so, you know and I saw it and walked away and thought for a day, and then thought, I know what I could do, and came up with an idea. I don't know whether I want to give it away. Uh, you don't have to. I shared it with, uh, I shared it with, uh, that wonderful, yeah, just yeah, sorry. the really important moment. Throw Should we just start over? No, 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 let's just carry on, and, and then you'll have a real difficult job editing that out. <laughs> you just dropped your pen, you just dropped your pen, try and edit that out. Um, yeah, and I shared it with, um, with Stephen Bagazzi, and I said to him, you know, you know, I've got this idea. He said, that's great. I said, well, you get one, because, you know, I'll hardly ever do it in America. I said, don't do it in magic conventions, and, you know, you can use it. So he immediately went out and got bought one as well. But, but yeah, sometimes it is, I see the prop, and then I think, what can I do that's more than just what everybody would do with the prop? Something that's just a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and then some, sometimes it's a combination, of, you know, like I say. I mean, the envelope trick, <clears throat> was inspired from um, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the book is it Mindstorms I always get the name wrong and and uh, and he'll be annoyed but anyway I just remember it'll, it'll come back to me it'll come back to me Sean Taylor's um, Mindstorms Brainstorms Mindstorms 
anyway, sort of mentalism book that he brought out. Um, he's in Australia. And he had a, he had a trick in there called um, Persuasive Bank Night, which had envelopes with words on. Um, and I think he had a dollar sign and a picture of a flower. One was a different colour. But he, he talked about the power of advertising and different things that were on there. And I like that idea of a bank night routine where it was about what was on the envelopes. But I wanted it to be all about words and I wanted it to be about um, the way that you played with words, you know. Mm -hmm. Teller called it my Carolian language, sort of Lewis Carroll type language of something and something and nothing else. All of that type of thing. So I was going to do that routine really, just with all with words. And, uh, and again, I was going to try it out on a tour. This was earlier on a few years ago, another tour I was doing with the same comedian. And I spoke to a magician friend called Pete Furman in the UK, who's sort of a really good comedy magician, one of the top guys in the UK for comedy magic. And uh, and he said, how are you going to produce the money at the end? I said, I'll just take it out of a thumb tip. And, uh, and he just asked the question, he said, are you happy taking the money out of a thumb tip? And that's all he had to say. And I went, yeah, yeah it'll be fine, you know. And as soon as I put the phone down, I thought, I don't feel happy. Yeah. You know, I just felt that I thought he's right. It just, there is no sensible reason why if you have a big envelope, you take a tiny bit of folded money out. And, um, so then that immediately made me think, well, how, how would I want the trick to look? And I think sometimes that's a great way to create an effect is, is not to think, how can it be done? Not to think, um, what methods are already available is just to think, if I really did this, what would it look like? And so I just made myself a few simple criteria. One was I didn't want the money to be folded any more than half. Mm-hmm. I thought if it was folded in half, that might be acceptable. Because I was thinking, I always thought like, whenever I got a birthday card or a, a present from my, my grandmother, she might put some money in it. Mm-hmm. It was never folded up. It might be folded in half once. I thought, I thought that's my criteria. I don't want it to be folded up much, if, if at all. And the other thing was, I thought it'd be nice to take out more than one note, to be take out several notes. So, and then I just went and bought some envelopes and started cutting them up with a pair of scissors and thinking, you know, how, how would this, how could this be hidden and how could I, you know, move it around and, uh, and then started doing it. And that changed a little bit, but that, that was purely from that one line of somebody just being honest with me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, if he hadn't said that, I'd have been pulling it out of the thumb tip. I wouldn't have full pen and teller and wouldn't have that effect really yeah um, so yeah I think I think people asking you hard questions is a good thing yeah do you do much collaborating on your material I mean because the questions are people just kind of giving notes but do you ever work with someone on creating material um, in your show no not really I mean I, I uh, the only collaboration is asking people to give me feedback on things mm. and beforehand talking to people so I might say, I'm working on this, what do you think? And they'll go, well, you know, what are you doing and why? And I'll go, well, I want to do this. Uh, but not not collaborating in the way that, you know, I'll get together with someone over a table with nothing mm-hmm. and say, right, you know, and, and build something up together on it. Um, it's much more, I, I sort of create, create stuff and then ask questions. It's funny because I've got like, I have quite... I don't really understand it sometimes, but I have quite tight guidelines on what I do like to do and what I don't like to do. And sometimes I can't even put it into words why I wouldn't want to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I sort of know that I don't really want to be an act that looks like it's using any props at all. 
So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't do, you know, I wouldn't do a die box routine or, you know, even doing sort of, um, you know, the old three slate. What's that called? You know, the, I wish you'd just give me some help. <laughs> um, if, if I knew what you were talking about, I would help. Well, you know the one. You, you want ahead and you have a, like a flap and you write one number. And you, you, they give you one and you say, I've made my prediction. Oh, and, yeah. the uh, uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but you don't know the name either, no. so you're no help at all. Anyway, no. I would never do that because that feels a little bit like a prop. I saw, I saw a guy um, who's working Bob. He's working with John Armstrong in the Pella this yes. weekend. Yeah, I don't remember his last name. All right. But he did it using a, a clapperboard slit. And I thought that, that I would probably use that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to because he's doing it. But I wouldn't want to use it if it just looked like a deliberate prop. Yeah. I don't mind dry white boards if they're just a dry white board. Pads, pens, things I can buy from Staples or Office World or something. But... Um, I don't really want to use props as such. And then there's certain routines. I don't, I don't want, I don't like to do routines where it's, it's the routine that's getting the laugh, not me. Okay. Yeah. So for example, uh, I would never do banana bandana. Um, I mean, I, I'm, for every reason in the world, I would never do banana bandana. It's the, I hit, it's the trick I hit most. In like it's karaoke magic. It's just you could give the instructions to my mother and she could do it. Um, and all the laughs are inherent in that little script and what happens. It's a great trick, but unfortunately, it's just too easy for everybody to do. Um, but I wouldn't do I, the, the the other reason I wouldn't do that is because it's sort of the trick that's getting the laughs, the nonsense, you know. So when people do mining new tricks where they'll put like a food mixer up to somebody's head and mm-hmm. you know, I'll get people to things you know wear yeah. things and do stuff and they look ridiculous I sort of I, I and there's no reason for it I, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it it's just I feel like I want the humour to be I'm the funny guy not you know not the prop again not, not, yeah, yeah. Not, not the prop and there's nothing wrong with props being sorry I just banged the microphone there that's one inch you did the pen I kicked the table um, there's nothing wrong with those routines as such and lots of people do them brilliantly but I think it's just knowing who I am and just thinking that's not really what I would do. It. Um, I don't think it suits who I am. I think it looks. A, it would look a little bit like I was trying too hard. And I used to do lots of prop gags years ago. I used to do lots of you know silly little prop gags. A pigeon with a handle on it to carry a pigeon, and I'd have a wooden thing sort of hammered out to look like the name Archer, and I'd say I've made a name for myself, and then I'd hold it up, show them, and. That sounds very Tommy Cooper. Yeah, it was. I was influenced by Tommy Cooper a huge amount when I first started. So I had lot. I mean, lots of them. You know, uh, you know, just silly little props that I'd pick up and do a line and and then put the prop down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would. I wouldn't do that now. So I changed who I am. I think, and I think if I I started doing them, it would it would feel a bit silly. I suppose the closest thing I've got to that are the silly little uke songs that I do. Yeah, that still feel like they're little. Out, you know, out of personality moments, but yeah, I like those a lot. I like that it harkens back to the Tommy Cooperish kind of humor too. I mean, yeah. it's very well, one-liner, but yeah, yeah. Well, I do, I do like them, um, and I don't, I don't do many jokes in my act as mm-hmm. such. Not you know, set punchlines. Yeah, 
a lot of them are their lines, you know, and their yeah. lines aimed at people or aimed at what's going on. Um, but they're not they're not traditional set up punchline type lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the sort of my best mate who you know I've toured with for twelve years and he's quite well known comedian in the UK. He's known for one liners. He's like you know he's you know his tagline is king of the one liners and you know he's just got just tons of you know silly one one liners like Black Beauty. He was a dark horse. So. <laughs> I've got a sponge front door, don't knock it. Um, so, <laughs> just all sorts of silly stuff. So, that's another reason why I don't really want to do just one-liners. But within the song, it feels like it's, it, you know, it's acceptable somehow. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. How did the, the uke come about? I'll tell you how the uke came about. Uh, I played the guitar since I was eight. And when I first started off, I used to play guitar and sing in a few bands, sort of rocky type bands, playing, you know. And then I got into a, a duo, just me and another guy, because that's what a duo is, isn't it? Nobody wanted to work with me. <laughs> and so there was me me and this uh, this other guy, and I, we were doing music and a bit of comedy, uh, and I said, can I do a trick? And I started doing a few tricks between the songs. He got sick of me, because he was just sat by the piano for 20 minutes while I did tricks. So eventually I went solo, and was doing music and, you know, playing the guitar, singing songs, doing tricks and comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a big setup. I had sort of a, a MIDI setup with, you know, a vocal harmonizer and drum machine and, and keyboards in the background. And it was a heck of a setup. And I got sick of carrying it all around. So then I thought, I'm just going to tone it down just to an acoustic guitar. So mm-hmm. I just used to use an acoustic guitar. And then eventually I sort of, that faded away. And I was just doing comedy and magic. Um, while this is going on, I've got three kids, a girl and two boys, and they they were growing up, my two boys got into music. So my guitars sort of vanished from, you know, my office and ended up in their bedrooms and became their property. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have, an, you know, I didn't really play guitar anymore, I didn't have an instrument. And then about seven years ago, six or seven years ago, I suppose, my kids bought me a ukulele for Christmas. And... Uh, and I loved it. I just thought, what a, you know, and it was quite easy to learn. If you, if you can play guitar, you can easily switch to ukulele. Um, and I just really liked it. And, and I thought, I'm going to put the ukulele in there. It's, e- it's easy to carry. It's not much more, you know, it still goes in the trunk of my car. Uh, and so I put it in and started doing, you know, a few silly songs with it. And then quite often when I'm doing a full show, I will finish with a, a poignant sort of song usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've played around with various versions. I used to finish with a little classical tune and get a spotlight on me and talk about how the ukulele is a maligned instrument and it can play nice stuff, do a classical thing at the end. Um, and then I, I played around with singing crazy to the audience about how, you know, you know, I realise they're going to leave the show and fall in love with somebody else and go and see another show and I'll just be somebody to talk about for a few months and forget about me. And so I said, you know, crazy, you know, just about like, you know, a broken relationship. So I used to sing that to the audience. Uh, and then the current thing I'm finishing with is Tonight You Belong To Me. Did you see me at Magic Live? Did yes. You see the show? So at Magic Live, I'm, I'm singing with Tonight You Belong To Me, which is, you know, just sort of saying to them, I realise they've got favourite comedians, favourite magicians, and it's not me, but just for that moment, they belong to me. And there's laughs along the way as it goes through, so it doesn't feel too hammy. Mm-hmm. But it's it's hammy enough that I, sometimes I'll see women crying in the audience when I do it, you know, if I get the mood right. Um, and it's a nice, it's a, you know, for me, it's a nice way to finish. It's very old school. 
you know, you went, if you go back 40 years, all the comedians used to finish with a song. Uh, so, and I, I quite like that. I quite like the, um, I quite like the pathos of just, you know, rounding it all off at the end. Yeah. With something. Why? Are we recording now? Yeah. Okay. Why Wait. do I like that? Um, yes, we are. I <laughs> <laughs> would be telling you that. Ah, good idea. Um, that's a good point. Why do, why do I like the idea? I think, um, I think I like honesty in, in comedy and magic. I like, I like, I think magic is all about lying. So the more truth you can put in your performance, the more authentic those lies are, if you know what I mean. And, and the more people, you know, the more people, um, don't feel so cheated by the lies if all you're doing is lying. Mm-hmm. So I like, I like to have honesty. So, you know, I have a few routines where I tell, tell stories about my life. I have one where I talk about, Becoming deaf in my left ear and being retired from the police force. And then I do a trick, uh, seven keys to ball pit type routine with keys in the box, but they're tapping them on a the glass and I'm listening to them. But it's nice just to give them that a little bit of my life. That's honesty. And I think I like the, um, you know, just the honesty of the fact that, you know, what, I, what I'm saying is all true. And then also just, um, I think there's something nice about, you know, that old, idea of the tears of a clown and you know that pathos thing of you know I, you know just letting them know that you really do love that you've managed to make them laugh and um you show them appreciation yeah yeah i think i think you let them know that you you yeah you appreciate what they're doing and um and you just open up yourself a little bit to them it's really it's, it's hard to put it into ter- into words really but uh I, th- I think they'll. I, th- I think they'll like to see the human side of that idiot who's been up there. Mm-hmm. Just for a moment, you just open up to them before you go and just you know and let let a bit of yourself out. And I mean everything. You know, when I when I say to them about you know you know I do this for the laughs and I do it for what you give me and you know I, I genuinely mean all of that. You know I do. And I think you can tell acts that don't really care. I think you can tell they're sort of you know a little bit dead behind the eyes and. You know, they're not doing it, you know, they're doing it just for a living. And obviously I do it for a living and I want to make money and I want to be successful. But if you don't really appreciate the fact that you go out there and there's, whether it's 60 people in the parlor or, you know, three or 400 in the theater or whatever it is, and they've all got, you know, relatives who have just died. They've got illnesses they've just been told about by the doctor. They've got debts that they can't afford to pay. They've got all sorts of worries. And they go out there and you, just for a brief moment, a bit like when I play golf and forget thinking about magic. Yeah. For a moment, you take their minds off that and you make them laugh. And, you know, it's just like, it's just the best thing in the world. I get emotional thinking about it. I just think, how nice is it to be able to do that? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, which is why I'll, you know, some people ring me up and ask me to do a gig and, you know, it, there's no money. And I think, well, it's not far away and I'm available. I'll go and do it because I just love doing it. Um, and I think that's why most of us do it. We're just sort of addicted to, you know, the drug of hearing laughter and all that sort of stuff. Well, you want the audience to... Do you want a handkerchief? You're crying. You're just... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what do you want the audience to feel throughout your show? Because at the end, they are appreciated. They feel uh, like you took care of them. I did when yeah, I saw yeah. the show. Yeah, I, th- I think. Yeah, I think I want them that. But 
I, yeah, I certainly want them to think that. I certainly want them to appreciate what I've done for them and realise that, you know, it's you know I've, I've worked hard and I've, I've delivered, you know, something rather than, you know, I've wasted twenty minutes of time or an hour of the time. But during the show, I, really, I just I, I just want them to forget about everything and just enjoy and, and laugh. I think laughter is is probably more of a priority for me than than mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, but not a, not a lot higher. Um, I remember Williamson being interviewed at a convention in in uh, in England. I think it might have been the Blackpool convention, and he said he would sacrifice the trick for a laugh. You know, he would mm-hmm. happily just let the trick fall by the wayside to get laughs. And I can fully understand that. I don't think I'm quite as committed to the comedy as he is on that front. I think I would still want to try and make the trick work. Um, and I certainly want to do strong magic. I, you know, one thing I decided when I was doing comedy magic was I didn't want to compromise one for the other. So I didn't want to do weak magic so that the comedy was strong or do strong magic and, and let the comedy be a bit weak. Mm-hmm. I wanted to try and... I, I've always wanted to try and make it strong comedy and strong magic. But my priority, when I actually walk out in front of the audience... I'm not really thinking about the trick. The tricks are sorted. I know what's happening with them. Yeah. My my priority is to get them laughing. I mean, if they didn't laugh throughout my whole act, but just went wow crazy when you know when the cards matched or when the money was in the envelope at the end, they just wow, that's amazing and applauded. I would feel like I'd failed a little bit. But if they went wild with laughter and laughed all the way through at everything, and then when the trick happened, they just went yeah. I wouldn't be too disappointed with that. <laughs> you know, I, that's the... Uh, that's The the less... greater goal was reached. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so, so yeah, I just want them, I just want them to sort of... To, to be able to stop thinking about anything else that might be going on in their heads. Mm-hmm. You know, and just just be in the moment and, and, and be loving it. And, you know, that idea of... I mean, people say, oh, you know, entertain is what we should be doing. And it sort of is true, but... Um, sometimes people just use that as an excuse for you know not having great tricks or whatever. So yeah. um, I, I don't want to fall into that thing, but I, but I do want to entertain them. I want to entertain them. I want to make them laugh, and and then I want to try and have strong tricks. But that thing of just letting them, you know, just get, taking them away, and I've had it several times. I've had it lo- lots of times actually. I've had people come up to me, and it's great. You know, old people come up and say, "My husband died six months ago." And, you know, thank you for making me laugh. And just little things like that, you think, yeah, you know, that's sort of what it is. Just, you know, take the mind off everything that's going on in the world and yeah. have a good laugh. That's really beautiful. So what about you? You don't, you don't perform a lot, do you? I, I know because I've listened to the podcasts. Yes. But do you, do you perform socially if you're out with friends? I do if I'm asked. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't, I don't ever want to push magic on people. Uh, I will run a joke into the ground. I will yeah. force a joke on yeah. somebody. <laughs> but uh, the magic, I don't ever uh, try to shove down anybody's throat. So that when they do ask and they are interested and want to see something, I can give them a little glimpse of wonder or yeah, yeah, you know yeah. something that is really uh, potentially powerful. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that's great as well. I mean, you know, my... my because I'm a comedy magician, my, my thing is, you know, my thing is comedy. But I think, I think, you know, if you're not a comedy magician, then that moment of wonder, I mean, that, that can t- 
take their mind off everything else as well and just sort of make them appreciate something. Yeah. I'm not against any of that. Oh, uh, sure. You know, um, I think it's great when, especially when, uh, you know, when the magic happens and they're not, they don't even realize the trick's going on. You just do something and, and you know, mm-hmm. and a magic thing happens and, you know, it's great. Yeah. So when are you going to get an act together? Are you never going to do that? I, I've been thinking about getting an act. You were at the castle almost every day this week. You could have worked one of the rooms. <laughs> I well, I did. I worked. Uh, I worked a couple of the rooms this week and just did some tricks and some magic. All right. What um, downstairs near the Hat and Hand places yeah, yeah. like that? Yeah. All right. You did that um, when I wasn't around. <laughs> I do it when nobody's around, so you know, <laughs> yeah. lay people are in there, and I don't have to feel so self-conscious. Um, it is nerve-wracking when there's magicians in, isn't it? I mean, I'm over it now. I don't, I don't. I quite like magicians being in. You know, I quite enjoy the challenge of that. But well, you also know who you are too as a performer. Yeah, I don't know who I am as a performer. No, yet. that that took, that took, that can take a while to find out. I'm still I'm still discovering bits about myself. I think now and again, little things that you know, uh, I realise. I think, oh, that doesn't work for me, or that does work for me. But I'm I'm pretty there. I think. But you're right. It, it's not something that... And also, how old are you? 24. Yeah, you see, 24, you st- you're still changing. Yeah. You know, I, I think your character, you know... You know, I didn't start performing professionally until I was 36. Um, and it probably took me another 10 years after that till I felt like I sort of knew who I was. Mm-hmm. So, um, but when you're 24, you know, you're still discovering what you want to do in your life and... You know, relationships. There's loads of stuff going on. You still, you still find it out. You know, all the stuff that you liked as a kid that you know were fashion things rather than actually. Doesn't matter if fashion changes. I'll always like this. Yeah. Like I'm into blues music. It doesn't matter what music comes in and out. I'll always love blues and rockabilly and sort of the old you know fifties rock and roll type stuff. You know, but but when you're young, you sort of you're hearing all these other things and think, well, do I now like that? Or, you know. But eventually, you you realise where you are. So I don't think you should worry about not knowing your character yet. And also, you you know, you've got to decide whether you're going to have a character or whether it's just going to be you mm-hmm. exaggerated. My character is pretty much just me. Yeah, exaggerated. You know. Yeah, and that that's I feel like that's what mine would be as well. Yeah, um, because it's, it's, it's the easiest one. It's the easiest one to go for, I think. Well, and I also like myself. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, and it's not to say that people who do characters don't like themselves, but like I, my experience of myself with other people, I think those people like me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if I'm going to perform, it what, seems to make sense that what's your worst character trait. Do you think, uh, I'm too humble. <laughs> was that funny? No, <laughs> it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad, but not honest. Now, no. what, what do you think your worst character trait is? <clears throat> um, I think probably I'm too much of a, a fixer. I'm a so little so. preachy. Okay. Yeah. Because I recently did um, Steve Martin's comedy course. Did you see oh, that? Masterclass? Yeah. Masterclass, yeah. Paid $90 and got 20-odd lessons. And he, he, he talks a lot about character in, in some of those early, the early ones. He does about, like I said, 20-something little sort of talks on different subjects. And he says, really, you know, amplifying your... Worst qualities is, is what's funny if you want to go for comedy. I mm. mean, you might not want to go for comedy. 
And it's sort of true. I mean, I'm, you know, I can be a bit of a bully, not nastily, but I can, you know, I can bully people a little sure. bit. And that's what I do on stage. It's, you know, it's sort of, sort of, um, and can be a bit loud at times. And so, so it's, it's, it's sort of those bad things in my character that I think I amplify and, and, and comedify, you know, try and make them funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas, you know, if, if you have a good part of your character, you amplify it. It's it's not that funny to people. Yeah, it's rarely that funny. So, yeah. it, you know, it's a great it's a great little masterclass that for you know not just for comedians but you know if you want to be a comedy magician the Steve Martin thing is great. Yeah, just a lot of really smart stuff in there about finding out who you are and you know writing and performing and and delivering lines and everything. It's great. It's really good. I haven't been through. I also purchased it. I haven't been through maybe what? four or five. Well, of them, I went, I went, you see, that's it. I went through the whole thing in about two days. I well, I, I was in my office yeah. and I just, I just <laughs> listened to another one and then I'd do a bit and listen to another one. I feel guilty doing that uh, because I feel like I'm neglecting my other <laughs> work. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I've been through, and it's also one of those things where. Because that's, I also did the Aaron Sorkin masterclass, right? Okay. Which uh, screen and playwright, and he's did you my, watch all of that? Yes, I did. All right, you watched all of that, but poor old Steve Martin no, put Steve, on the shelf. No. <laughs> well, I hope Steve's listening to this. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Steve. I I want to get back to Steve, but I also, I think the stuff that he's talking about is. I'm not quite ready for it yet mm-hmm. because I'm not, I haven't started putting together an act and I don't want to listen to it and get it inside of me and then let it fade away. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, it. And also, you know, you do, I presume you don't even know whether you want to do a comedy. You, you probably... I, <laughs> I have, I'm in two minds about it, which I hate that phrase and I hate the idea of feeling mixed feelings. But... I think I want to do stand-up or platform magic mm-hmm. and do that in a way that is funny. Okay. But do close-up magic in a way that is situationally funny, but more about the mm. magic and the wonder. Yeah. And the- well, Paul, you know, Paul Wilson, when he does close-up, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say he's a comedy magician, but there's, there's enough comedy moments in his routines. Yeah, you know that it's it's funny and there's comedy there. So there are level, you know, there are levels of yeah. You know, he, he's not doing gag 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 gag. Yeah. He's doing interesting stuff and he's doing a bit of process and then he's doing you know a funny yeah. line just to yeah. might just be a to, wink at the audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just punctuating punctuating moments and I think for most people that's you know that's the route to go. Sort yeah. Of, um, and that's kind of how I think about it too. Is I'm a funny guy who's doing magic. Yeah. You know whatever is funny that happens comes quote unquote naturally. Yeah. That's the idea anyway. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just have recently been thinking about what magic, what the feeling of capital M magic is and how that works. And it's been super interesting and motivating and also soul crushing <laughs> because yeah. some of, in my ex- experience, limited experience, some of the, my favorite tricks to do are not as powerful as some of the others, and I, 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 I had a conversation at Magic Live with Shane Cobalt about if there is a varying degree of astonishment, 
Right. And he would say, you know, you could you could be more astonished or less astonished. And I said, no, you're either astonished or you aren't. Um, and so having that conversation kind of made me start thinking about what magic is. And it's and also Derek Delgado's new uh, video that he put out for the future of storytelling yeah. thing, which I thought was beautiful. And he talks about magic being the moment of belief that the thing is gone. Yeah, just and before. Then, yes, yeah, and just, then the magician validates it. Yeah. So I was thinking about that, and all this stuff kind of happened at the same time, and so I, I have this tentative definition of magic that fits for me right now in the moment, yeah. which is uh, magic is acceptance of the impossible, validation of the impossible, and then the experience of wonder. So the feeling, capital M, magic that you feel w with a first kiss or when you're standing in the middle of the desert, you look up into the night sky. Yeah. That's uh, the belief, the realization, you know, going in for the kiss, making the decision, okay, I'm going to do it. And then the kiss is the opening the hand and seeing it's really gone. That's the moment of astonishment when the, um, the thing happens or is confirmed. And then sort of the refractory period, the aftermath of that all happening is quote unquote wonder, yeah. that, that bliss glow feeling. Uh, and that, you know, in life and in magic tricks that can take, you know, between two seconds and a minute, you know, mm -hmm. but that, that whole kind of thing is capital M magic to me. And... That led me to start thinking about some of my favorite tricks and how they're multi-phase tricks, which links back to the astonishment thing. If you're astonished or you aren't, if you're astonished and you're going to go to, if you astonish the audience and you're going to go to the next phase, you're stomping on the wonder to get to the next part of the trick, to get to, the, to eventually mm -hmm. possibly build to the big finale to allow that wonder. But some of the strongest tricks that I do are build up, build up, build up, build up, boom, wonder yeah right yeah i must have i i am not a fan of um routines where um the, there's a reveal and then there's another reveal revealing the same thing mm -hmm. so you know somebody else say um you you know you pick the four of clubs mm -hmm. and the audience go great and they say but not only that you know hanging up on the roof throughout the whole thing a banner drops down you will choose the four of clubs and you know and before you started, you know, you came in, I videoed you coming in, and if you look on the wall behind you, there's a four. It's just like, they pick the four of clubs and you, they pick the four of clubs. You know, and lots of people do that sort of, um, you know, second and third sort of reveal of the same information. Yeah. But for me, I, I sort of just like that, you know, that, that, that one moment of, you know, make it big and make it bold yes. and then works. It's like the tossed out deck. Some some people like the uh, the tossed out deck where they'll go, um, they'll name three cards. Mm -hmm. So you've got three people standing, they'll name three cards, you know, four of clubs, ten of hearts, three of diamonds, and then they'll point to what person and say, if I named your card, would you sit down, please? Yeah. And it gets a bit of a blast. If I named your card, would you sit down, please? If I, named... I much prefer, if I named your cards, would you sit down, please? All three sit down. Oh. There's that, that one moment. That's that confirmation. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's me kicking the table again. So careful, Mr. Microphone. Uh, yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of, you know, building, you know, just building upon building upon reveals. Mm -hmm. 
unless there's something new with it each time and then I don't mind but yeah well that's the thing too is that like if you're gonna have a sort of quick kicker ending it's got to be a surprise it's got to be a left turn that yeah. disorientates you otherwise it is yeah. you're just building on yeah. something that already got it but there again having said all of that I, you know you see some people do it brilliantly and you know they're I think it's dangerous to make rules but you know sure You've just got to know what what is right for you, mm-hmm. you know, and then realize that some people are going to, you know, Darren Brown, you know, he's the master of, you know, a reveal and then, you know, a reveal on top of it, a reveal on top of it. And it works perfectly in his hands and it sort of makes sense. And it's, you know, he, he, uh, he gets away with it. It's not something I, you know, works for me or I, I, I want to do. But so I think making rules is uh, a little bit risky until you know. You can make rules for yourself. I sure. Think. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. that, that's another thing that I'm struggling with is like, I have this idea of what it is that I have found works for me and feels right. But then I see examples of people doing things that shouldn't work with my definition that are yeah. killing. Yeah. And that, you know. Mm-hmm. Vanishing bandana. <laughs> Vanishing bandana. You see people do that who are not, you know not great performers and they'll knock an audience dead with it and it's annoying but you know some things work even if you don't like the fact that they work yeah <laughs> so um you know and you see some people using bits of business that are just they're just guaranteed bits of business if you do them they'll they'll get laughs and they're all bits of business and people go out and you sort of think well you know should I you know should I tell them off for that or should I just think well you know they're they're not that ambitious to want to go and try something that they've created themselves and yeah you know so what what is what's our, our responsibility in that situation <clears throat> or do we have one do you think when somebody's doing hack material uh, do we just let it run its course because they'll be found out eventually by the public or I mean well I, th- I think people who are doing hack material or you know standard bits that everybody's doing it's unlikely they're ever going to really get anywhere. You know, it's unlikely they're ever really going to rise to the top. The people who rise to the top <coughs> usually um, have, you know, have some sort of talent in, in some area. They might not be talented in every area, but, uh, and they normally, they normally have originality on the side. Um, Copperfield did, you know, Vanishing Bandana brilliantly. Yep. You know, brilliant. Um, you know, but it was borrowing somebody's bag and there was, you know, there was lots of other business going on. It was perfectly justified. And you watch that clip of him doing it. And you can understand why people just thought, there's a trick that, you know, it's worked. It doesn't take, it doesn't take any effort. You just put the tape in and follow the instructions and do a few quirky looks at the audience. So, um, but the, so the one thing is, I don't think we have to worry too much whether or not they drag the art down or not. Um, I don't know. You see, I, if somebody asks, if somebody's doing an act and I think it's a bit hacky or that, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of lines. I, I have a few lines that are standard, but not many. Um, and I, I try and get rid of them when I can. Some I'm just sort of wedded to when I can't. But, um, if somebody asks me, then I'll tell them. And I think that's the thing. If somebody asks you, then it's fair game to, you, you, you've got to be honest with them and say, well, you know, you're doing that and everybody's doing it or you're doing that and it's, it's an old bit that, you know, you're not going to stand out if you're doing that and get rid of it and do something else. Yeah. But then the problem is, you know, some, some 
you know, some people, you know, that that they're not going to be able to be original. They're not going to come up with stuff. They're out, you know. Is that my fridge making that noise? Yeah. <laughs> aliens were visiting us. Do you want to kick it? That might stop it. I'll kick it, but I yeah, don't know how to stop it. <laughs> oh, you changed the tone. Um, yeah, they, I bet you're really glad you got this mic and this angle poised lamp all set up so that you didn't have any noises. Now you've got a fridge buzzing in the background. <laughs> it is what it is. No, so what I was going to say is, um, there's an awful lot of people who take up magic who, um, aren't, aren't great performers, aren't natural performers, and they, they, they couldn't be a performer in, in other fields, you know. Uh, and the thing about magic is, it's magic. It, uh, trying to think of the quote but it was uh, I think it was a Ricky Jay quote but you know magic is enough to you know to to entertain people without you know without the magician almost it's just so you somebody can buy a brainwave deck you know read the instructions once do that and a spectator will think they're amazing yeah they won't realise it no it's the you know it's the trick that's amazing it's just that clever little system that's been set up that's, yeah. that's amazing so there's an awful lot of magicians who, you know, think they're they're really rocking an audience and entertaining them, when it's not really them. It's the tricks, you know. Mm-hmm. I always I always think a good test is it if if a magician could step in front of an audience without any tricks and still engage and entertain them, you know, just by telling them a good story or, you know jokes, whatever, it doesn't have to be funny, but if I could just get in front of an audience for 10 minutes without doing a trick and still entertain an audience, then they've probably, probably got it. But if, if they need the props and the, the stuff to, you know, to make them appreciated by the audience, then it's not really them that's doing it. You know, because, you know, you can use a, you know, a shell coin and make it look like one coin's vanished. It's amazing. People who don't know about shell coins, they just go, wow, we can make a coin vanish. But you know, it's it's not you, is it? So it's got to be. There's got to be more to it than just the trick. Mm-hmm. So some of these people, and I don't, I don't want to sound negative, but some you know there are some people in the magic world who, you know, they're not. We're not going to be able to get rid of them, and we're not going to be able to improve them, and you know, we sort of. The poor will always be with us. I think Jesus said that about magicians, didn't he? I think so. Yeah. Mm. Little Bible quote there. So yeah. Sounds a bit sad, that doesn't it? But well, I mean, it is what it is. That's just being honest. Um, and I think a lot about how we can't change the people that are set in their ways, but we can educate the people coming up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, how do you have any youngsters around that you you think are doing good work and have promise and? Um, None that I'm sort of close to or mentoring or anything like that. I know that the Magic Circle in England has the Young Magicians Club and I've been and helped out there sort of, you know, watch them and given advice, you know, with other people and um, and they're coming up. I mean, the big challenge for, for I think, any club or organisation is not to just breed people like them. You've got to try and just get people to come up and be original. So when... You know, if a magic club has a competition and they say, right, you know, you're going to get judged on 
magical performance and this, that, and the other, and dress, you know. And so people are going, you know, think, right, I've got to wear a suit and a tie. Then, you know, we, we just, we're just keeping them looking the same, you know, wearing a bull tie and a suit or whatever. So I think we, we and I think the magic suit, so I think the Young Magicians Club are, are, are sort of trying to do that now, trying to encourage people to be more original, more distinctive, and, you know, just let them be more creative. I think, I think, Young magicians are influenced a lot by what they see on television. So when they're seeing people like Blaine and, you know, in the UK, Dynamo and, and Darren Brown and people like that, then I think that that's what's, that's going to be the big influence on them. So mm-hmm. I think they're, they're all relatively good role models for them, you know, to, um, to do good stuff. Um, there aren't many, there aren't many comedy magic people on TV in the UK. I don't know whether, whether there are in the, here in the US or not. Not really. Yeah, it seems to be really, really that there's a magic that's cool and that television companies want at the moment uh, is that street magic, slightly real. Yeah, you know, questionable. You know, how's he really doing that? That that's the that seems to be the style that's popular. Um, whether or not whether or not like the comedy magician character will come back. I mean, it, I think if they saw somebody who could do it well, you know. Then, then maybe, um, maybe it'd be you know become popular again. Mm-hmm. But it's getting a, it's getting a broadcaster that's brave enough to say, do you know what? Let, let's put something on that's like that. Yeah. Where the magic's less important and the comedy's really strong. Mm. I suppose people appear on some of the chat shows now and again doing comedy magic. Like I said, Pete Furman in the UK makes the odd appearance on some UK TV shows, and it's hard to tell, isn't it? But. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a lot of direct input into what young people are doing, other than you know them seeing what I do. But really, I don't think young people should try and copy what I do anyway. I'm, I'm a bit old school anyway, so you know uh, they probably want to try and you know do something that's much more current comedically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the UK, you know, it's uh, it's less less. Less gaggy, really. It's much more um, obscure. A lot of the humour. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe new up-and-coming comedy magicians will just be a bit more sophisticated. <laughs> well, either sophisticated or, or crazy. You know, just like slightly surreal, I suppose. Or whatever. You know, there's lots of ways you can go in there, but I feel a bit reluctant to try and mentor a young comedy magician because I think that you know. They don't need to be like me. They need to, you know, for, you know, be like the comedians who are on the circuit now. Yeah. You know. Who knows? <laughs> are we recording now? Yes. Good. We are. Um, what? Oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, yeah, hopeless you really are. <laughs> oh, it was something about young guys and. Uh, Sense of humor. Uh, oh, who 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 were your comedy influences and magic influences coming out? And well, how did that affect? How does that translate into what you're doing now? Well, my, my, you probably won't have heard of most of the comedy influences I had. Um, I, I used to like all the a lot of the old school seventies comedian types. So we had a great double act in the UK called Markham and Wise, who were probably they were very influenced by Abbott and Costello. 
Okay. Except they were later on. They were in the these guys were sort of in the seventies and eighties. Um, I was really influenced by them. I used to love watching watch them with the family all the time. Tommy Cooper influenced a lot. Uh, well, I don't know whether I was influenced. I suppose I was because I started doing prop dance. People like Les Dawson, who's a, again a UK guy. Not not you know we we didn't see a lot of American comedians over there. So certainly not when I was sort of in my teens. Maybe a little bit later we started seeing more American comics. Um, and it's really hard to say how they've influenced me. I think I think probably just um, Morkham Wise. Eric Morkham was the funny guy. Ernie Wise was the straight man. Eric Morkham was a bit. He would make fun of people. Um, he'd make fun of the special guests they had on the show. He'd make fun of Eric Morecambe. And I think I, I think I got that from him. And I think I got a little bit of my timing and delivery from him. I think sometimes I use the same sort of rhythms that he would use mm-hmm. um, to deliver lines. Some people talk about timing. I think it's a, a lot more about a rhythm, that the way you deliver a line with a... Not either da 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 or a da 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 da. And there's lots of you listen to comedians, you're going to hear punchlines often end in a in the same rhythm. So um, he's probably the biggest biggest influence. Tommy Cooper maybe for the prop gags and the style, but certainly not the magic. Magic influences, uh, I would say, probably the biggest was Paul Daniels because he was like on TV all over when I was in my late teens and, and you know I didn't get into magic till I was 19 so you know but he was he was doing lots of magic on TV then so I, I, I was probably influenced a lot by his style and then the other two were Jeffrey Durham who I don't know if you've heard of Jeffrey Durham um, he wrote a great book called Professional Secrets uh, he's a great was like a great working pro in the UK um, worked for a long time under the game of the great Soprendome was sort of a bit of a family, kids type guy, Spanish, you know, character, magician. Then he ditched that and started just doing it on his own. And uh, and I used to look, I love, I still do, I still love the way he sort of presents magic. He sort of presents it very, very cleanly and, um, you know, very slick. There's, there's, there's no, there's no moments that aren't thought out in it. So I like that. And then um, Wayne Dobson, of course, who, uh, you know, was on TV when I was growing up. And I, I loved, um, I loved I loved a lot of his lines. I loved the way he uh, some of the, some of the storytelling he used to do. He used to do like a Sam Spade character, mm. um, and I think maybe some of the storytelling stuff I maybe got from watching him. So the, those are probably the big influences. But then, you know, hundreds of people I suppose I've just watched and liked over the years. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Did I answer the question? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Fridge is quiet now, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, how... How do you do... Okay, I'll just say How do this. you do that trick with the cards that match? Yeah. I'm not telling you. Okay, It's in my lecture tomorrow. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard and I've read things that say that your mentalism is very funny. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And why do you do that? Um, it's sort of two things. First of all, why do I do mentalism? As a put, most of what I do is mentalism. If you look at my 
repertoire, there are a few things that aren't mentalism. I do a bowling ball production from a briefcase sometimes, which isn't mentalism. I do a balloon swallow that isn't mentalism. I sometimes do a bird knot to wallet routine, a bit like Terry Seabrooks. It's not mentalism. But the rest of my repertoire, you know, are probably mentalism tricks. And that sort of happened... It sort of happened by accident, and then I realised, actually, why it happened. Um, I, did, I didn't... It wasn't a deliberate choice. It sort of, I noticed that most of the tricks I was doing were mentalism. Um, and I think the reason why I do a lot of mentalism is mentalism is about people. It's a, you, you're always dealing with members of the audience in mentalism. Uh, if you just do straight magic, like, for example, the bowling ball production or, you know, you know, a zigzag can of coke or something like that, nobody has to be involved. And I like people being involved because my character is dealing with people. My character is... You know, my, my, the strongest routines for me are when I've got somebody on stage with me, really. But I can't do every trick with somebody on stage because it, it would just be a constant, you sit down and get somebody up. Mm-hmm. So I have some that are um, with people in the audience and, and various combinations of that. So I think that's why I do mentalism, because I like tricks that involve people. And the reason I do it comedically is because uh, I'm a comedian. Yeah. You know, and I want to do comedy. Uh, I have no desire for the audience to believe that anything I do is real. So I don't want them to think I can really read minds. So I don't think the comedy compromises the trick because I'm happy for them to think it's a trick. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I wouldn't sort of just you know say this is a trick. I'm not, I'll normally mess around a little bit and pretend there's something else going on, but I never want them to think that there really is anything else going on. Sure. Um, so that, that's sort of why I do the comedy. I mean, people sort of say, oh, you can't do mentalism and comedy together. And I've always thought that's a strange thing anyway, because, you know, I mean, who's the biggest comedian in the US at the moment? Who is it, would you say? Louis C.K.? Louis C.K., Bill Burr. Okay. Just imagine that Louis C.K. woke up this morning mm-hmm. and realised he could genuinely read people's minds. Do you think he'd stop being funny when he did it? <laughs> No. No, he wouldn't. He'd still be Louis C.K. He'd still, you know, he'd say, look, I can read people's minds. And he would still joke around while he was doing it because he's a comedian. So um, this idea that if somebody is a mind reader, it's impossible for them to have a sense of humour. I think it's ridiculous, you know. I mean, I, I, I never, to be honest, I never even questioned the idea of doing comedy and mentalism together until people say, started telling me that I was, like, a bit unique in doing it. Because I'd seen Max Maven walk out in front of an audience and go boo, and I thought that was funny, and I thought he's a you know he's a mentalist and yeah he, he he's funny and he you know he, he wasn't you know clowning comedian gag 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 but he he did funny things he said funny things and he said funny things to the members of the audience. So I I always thought you know if you could do mentalism there's no reason why you can't be funny doing it, and it was only later on when people sort of came up to me and told me that that wasn't wasn't possible well, I'm doing it you know. um, yeah I haven't, I haven't got an issue with it I think I think if you if you were one of these mentalists who wanted the audience to believe you were real or at least question whether you've got something which some do mm-hmm. then I agree that just doing comedy might slightly undermine that certainly if you were doing 
as much comedy as I do in a routine, it might undermine the believability. But because I, I'm not going for that, it doesn't affect me. Ah, oh, makes perfect sense. And your point about Louis C.K. is, I think, that's all. That's the only argument that there needs to be. Is yeah, if you I mean, got a funny person and gave them the ability to read minds, they'd still be funny. Exactly. It's just this idea that the, you know the mutually exclusive is ridiculous. It's just like you, you know, there's no reason why you should be able to do both together. Yeah. So, what kind of rooms do you do? I mean, do you like switch your switch your material based on your venue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, having said that, I mean that Laura Buxton trick, which is a card trick, I have done it in theaters the whole 3,000 and you know and got away with it because I you know I get the guy to confirm everything that's going on the people at the back they might not be able to see what the cards are but there's enough going on that they realise it's worked and stuff but I wouldn't always do that in theatres and I did you know because I wanted to do that particular trick at a particular time and I proved it could work but um, yeah uh, I, I have in, in the trunk of my car I have a big um, sort of pelican case that has got all my routines. It's probably got about three hours worth of material in there. Wow. Of stand up material, you know. So I'll look in and I'll look at the venue and I'll think, well, you know, the angles are too wide for the magic square. The people at the sides aren't going to be able to see the numbers. So I won't do that. Um, you know, the tossed out deck I might not do because there's no access to the guy in the front row to, for me to do the deck switch. So, um, so yeah, I'll get to a venue and I have like a standard set, but then I'll get there and look and think, yeah, I'm going to ditch that and I'll do that. I'll try this. And then depending, you know, on who the audience is as well, you know, if it's a family audience, it, um, I wouldn't do Celebrity Deadass, which I did at, uh, mm-hmm. at uh, Magic Live, which is Bill Abbott's collaboration with me I, w- I would probably do Celebrity Smartass which is just the straight Bill Abbott version yeah you know and because just talking about dead people and dying and stuff if you've got loads of kids in the audience it might just feel a bit bad taste so so I um, yeah depending on the audience and the room I, I'll, I'll vary slightly what I do uh, and then also sometimes the mood I'm in yeah and whether I've got any batteries for my buzzing days How does your mood affect your shows? Because one of the reasons that I don't perform is because when I was performing, I would go, I don't want to go do this gig. Yeah, no, I sometimes feel like that. I sometimes feel like, sometimes I can be exhausted, absolutely exhausted. You know, I've traveled, you know, for 10 hours and I didn't get any sleep and something's happened. Or, uh, you know, I can have, you know, problems at home, things I'm trying to sort out and you just think, oh, the last thing I want to do is a gig. But really, once once I step on stage, that all all just gets forgotten about. It just kicks in, you know. There's a comedian at home who's um, quite a well-known comedian doing a show in the West End. His father died in the afternoon. He went on stage that night, didn't tell any of the cast what had happened, just did his show. None of them were aware of it. Um, and that sort of that concept of the show must go on slightly prevails. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm not, he was a West End show that he was committed to doing. You know, I think if it had just been a, an ordinary one-off gig, he might have cancelled it, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think he felt he could cancel this one. Um, 
But yeah, yeah, certain certainly mood. Just once you get on stage, it just all goes, and yeah. I've been really ill and sort of still carried on, you know. Yeah. So you know, being just sort of fevery and feeling absolutely rotten, just just going on, and it's it's just an act. You just your eyes widen a little bit, and your shoulders step back, and you step on the stage, and you punch away, and then you come off, you know. And I actually remember I did a gig for um, a business guy I know, and he wanted me to do a gig in his house for just thirty of his friends and neighbours. Uh, and I had been the night before I was ill, really upset stomach, sort of constantly going to the bathroom and you know driving I had to drive down to him and he was in Cardiff so that was normally a five hour drive so he said get to me in the afternoon you can chill out a bit and we'll do the show but because of the traffic I didn't get there till seven in the evening I was supposed to be doing my little bit at quarter to eight so I got there I was feeling really I had a splitting headache I was really tired hadn't slept during the night upset stomach um, and, and he, he said well you know just do you want to go and have a lie down first? I said, no, I've got to set my stuff up. Show me the room. So I set my stuff up. Uh, he said, right, go and relax. I said, you're, you're only about 20 minutes. So I went up. I was staying with him at his house. Mm-hmm. I went up, sort of lied on the bed for 20 minutes. He came, knocked on the door. We're ready. I went downstairs, did, did my thing, you know, did, a, I think, about an hour and a quarter. Bang, bang, bang. Finished. Packed everything up and then just went upstairs <laughs> back to bed. I went to just dosed myself up with tablets and things. Went back to bed. But, um, you know... You, the audience wouldn't have known really because you just, just you just kick in. I think just performance mode kicks in. I'm not saying I would always perform. I, I think I've missed I've missed one gig uh, because of illness in 21 years, and that was this this last year. And I, I had a bad foot and I literally couldn't walk out the house. Uh, and I got in touch with them and said, "Look, I can't do it." And it's it's about an hour from where I live. Um, and I just rearranged it. I said, look, I'll come and do it. And I think I'm doing it in a couple of months' time for them again. You know, they'd sent me a deposit and they said, keep the deposit and just, you know, do it for us in a few months' time. So, but that's the first time it's ever happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've had all sorts of things, you know, wrong with me and things going on that you just think, ah, you know. I was just listening to a podcast and a musician was talking about how he was touring as an opener uh, and over the course of the tour his voice started giving out yeah and they were at a big show and his voice was gone but he went out on stage sang you know did his set Mm -hmm. came back on stage and he was totally done he he, you know he was sure he wasn't going to be able to sing anymore that night or you know maybe the next couple of days and the band that he was opening for was a big band and at the end of their set, the guy, uh, the front man for the band was like, hey, do you want to come back out and do a song with us? And he mm. said, came right back, yeah, yeah. went up and yeah, did yeah. the song. Yeah. It's funny because sometimes um, I find, I normally take off between Christmas and New Year. I normally take that week off. I normally don't work between Christmas and New Year. Never have since my kids have been young. I've always sort of promised them, right, we'll, we'll have that little time together. And I can find that I can be really busy in December, you know, working every night, doing gigs. And as soon as I stop, say around about the 20th or 21st of December, I'm just ill. Yeah. Just as soon as I stop, I'm just like sore throat and full of cold and everything. And But it never happens. I just It just holds off until, until I stop. My wife says, you should just carry on gigging. You know, but 
Um, but it's funny, it's just almost like you, your body stays in survival mode until until it knows it doesn't need to. Yeah, so it can relax and get it out of its system. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. You let it that shit word out, won't you? No. Won't you? Oh. <laughs> This is, it's got to be authentic, John. Yeah, keep it authentic. Yeah. Um, Why not straight comedy? Uh, A lot of people have asked me that. And then don't worry about it. No, 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 no. (laughs) Nobody's asked me on a podcast. Okay. Um, On the comedy circuit in London, there's probably, you know, I don't know how many, 500, 600, 1,000 comedians. I think I know four comedy magicians. So I'd rather stay in that little competitive pool of four comedy magicians. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Um, yeah, there's a few reasons. That's one reason that I, I like the fact that I'm unique because I do comedy and magic. That's not always good in comedy clubs because some comedy clubs don't want comedy magicians. The second reason uh, is I love performing magic. So I want to do magic uh, as well as it makes me unique. I actually like magic. I want to do magic. And the third reason, if I'm really honest with myself, is uh, I'm I'm not 100% sure whether I could pull it off just doing pure comedy. I would have to I would have to write a ton more material. I mean, I have yeah, I have been places where you know I've been at a comedy club and I've done 20 minutes and it's one trick because mm-hmm. I've just started chatting to the people and ad libbing and and that's what I like doing, but it's not material. I think if I did pure comedy, I might have to have material. But there again, I see some stand-up comedians who don't have material. They go out and just riff it, you know, yeah. have a couple of little topics and riff it with the audience. But yeah, there's a little bit of me that thinks maybe maybe I wouldn't be able to pull it off doing pure comedy. Or, or you know, maybe maybe that I wouldn't be able to pull it off, but it frightens me a little bit. Have you ever tried? Uh, no, I've never ever, uh, never ever done a, you know, a stand-up set without without a trick. Um, but I mean, you know, I don't do a lot of tricks. I mean, the parlor, I'm doing, you know, well, over 20 minutes, but uh, two tricks. Yeah. Um, and I could quite easily do that parlor slot and just do one trick and do more stuff before and after it comedically if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But because it's the magic castle, I felt like I've got to do at least two tricks. <laughs> you know, if I just do one trick, I've got to, you know, I'm never going to win Parlor Magician of the Year, am I doing two tricks? But, um, but yeah. Uh, I've never done it. I've never tried just pure stand-up. I think if I was forced to do it, I would, but I'd have to think long and hard about what I was going to do. Really. Do you think you would approach comedy if you were going to do it the same way that you approach magic? And by that I mean um, finding... Do you, I, I guess my question is this. Your approach to comedy now is a little more old school. Do you think that if you were going to do straight comedy, you would stay old school? Or yeah, would... I, think, I think I would stay sort of, yeah, pretty much. I think if I, if I did stand up, it would be very much, you know, I'd be chatting to people while I did it. I think I'd talk, I think I'd probably tell some stories because that's something I'm already comfortable with. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell the Laura Buxton story. You know, without doing a trick, I could just tell that story and gag it up even more. You know, and uh, you know, I could tell. You know, I would, I would, I think I would tell stories. I think I'd, I'd tell stories and be funny al- al- along the way. That's 
probably what I would do. But and yeah, I would probably approach it similar in the same way that I, I do with magic. I might see some, I might have some funny things and think, right, I'll fit them into a story, or I might see a nice story and think, right, I'm going to get some funny things. So I'd, I'd find one or the other, or I might find both. Mm. So yeah, I suppose the approach would be would be similar, really, and talking to people, trying it out. Uh, I think doing comedy magic is, you know, certainly the closest thing to a stand-up magician than any other form of magic, obviously. So, um, and I work, you know, I, I work comedy clubs now and again doing it with straight stand-ups. Um, and, you know, you chat to them enough to know the process they go through mm-hmm. and how they do it. But it's so varied comedy now, you know, people are doing sketch stuff, they're doing, you know, silly songs, they're doing just one-liner jokes, they're doing, you know, longer set-up and punchline jokes. This, mm-hmm. You know, it's not like the old days where it was. I mean, I say I'm old school, but I'm not really old school in the fact that I do, you know, these three guys went into a bar. I don't do gags like that. <laughs> yeah. I sort of, my jokes are a little bit more sophisticated than that. I think just maybe my delivery and, you know, and my luck is old school, certainly. Sure. How do the comedians react to what you do when you work the clubs? Yeah, uh, I think it's, it varies, really. I mean, some look down on anybody that, um, you know, isn't just a pure microphone and, a, and you stand there and do stuff. So even, vent, you know, ventriloquists can get looked down. I mean, the comedy store in London, they won't really book anybody unless you just, you know, they won't book a, you know, comedy magician or a comedy juggler or anything like that. Pretty much, even even people with guitars are a bit, you know, they'll they'll book a few, but they're not, it tends to be a guy or a woman standing at a mic is what they want. And there's a little bit of, there can be a bit of disdain from some comedians about comedy magicians and I think sometimes that is because they do think we all do the same material yeah and in some ways we you know we do, I do tricks that you know are standards you know tossed out deck and magic square lots of people do I mean I do my own version of it but so I can see that they might think oh well you know they're not that original they're just touting this stuff but normally if I if I do a, a spot in a comedy club I usually go down quite well and, and once you've gone down well they can see that you know how to handle yourself comedically and you get a bit more respect so I know quite a lot of stand-ups now in the UK and I think most of them respect me a little bit for what I do and you know, realise I know what I'm doing sure but cer- certainly you've got you've got a few more hoops to jump through before you get the respect than if you were just a stand-up at the end of the day if you you know if an audience laugh an audience laughs um and, you know, some comedians might get snobby and say, yeah, well, you know, a bit like I get snobby about the vanishing bandana. Yeah. They, they get snobby about, yeah, yeah, but, you know, they laughed and, you, you know, you were just doing old school stuff or whatever. I don't know. I don't worry too much about what other people think, really. That's what's really been nice about here is just having people who I really respect sort of saying nice things to me. So you're having Williamson and Matt King and Johnny Thompson, you know, giving me affirmation, that sort of... That's what you want, isn't it? Yeah. Really, that's, a, that's good for you. Uh, I don't get that so much in England because they're probably sick of me. <laughs> Are you oversaturated over there? I think I probably am a little bit, yeah. I think I'm probably a little bit oversaturated and probably uh, 
like many, just, you know, you get taken for granted, I suppose. You're there and, you know, I try not to do as many conventions as I used to do, but they're only, you know, they're only a handful of conventions really in the UK. Mm-hmm. And if you're constantly doing them, you just become, they just, you just become like part of the furniture. Yeah. You're just like, oh, there's John and he does this. So when I come over here, it's certainly very different. Certainly I come over here and it's like, I'm, you know, I appear fresh and, you know, that they see me once a year at some convention and it's so big that, Every convention I come to, and chances are that the majority of the people there haven't seen me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a different kettle of fish here, I think. True. Do you have that phrase, kettle of fish? No. All right. Yeah, different kettle of fish. I don't know what it means. It means uh, a different situation. It's a whole new kettle of fish. Yeah, I can remember doing that. The first time I did the castle, I used the phrase, choose a common or garden item. And I'd been doing it for half the week before John Lovick said, what do you mean? And that was a phrase that we use in England. I never know what phrase I'm using. Has any of this interview actually made sense? No. Are we recording now? Yeah. Great. We've got we've got most of it, I think. I was just going to run it through Google Translate. Mm. That'll work. You'll come out sadly sensible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because I, I, I mean, I already have to do that for, uh you know, distributing the podcast globally. Yeah. You have to translate it into every single language. Just looking at my watch, I've got plenty of time. I've got a sew, I've got a split in my trousers, I need to sew it up down the side, the little seams just come apart. That's too bad. I like that suit a lot. I yeah. I think it looks really good on you. It's made to measure, but I, I found a, a site on the internet that, um, did I tell you? No. I found a site on the internet, I think it's called Empire Outlet, I don't know whether, whether you, you can access it from over here, but you can in the UK. And you get a tailor to measure your measurements, and then you send them in, and they send the, you know, they're made in Singapore somewhere, made to measure. You choose the material that you want, and uh, and then they send them back. And it's about, I don't know, maybe $350 for the suit, you know, made to measure. It's quite good quality. It's not, you know, it doesn't cost you thousands. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got about four from there. I've just got another one, a red one, which... Uh, has been delivered at home. It'll be there for me when I get back. That's cool. It's like a yeah. It's like not like a bright red. It's not like a clown red. It's like yeah. a dark burgundy red. So yeah, but I've only you know I don't really wear suits a lot when I but if I perform a comedy club I wouldn't wear a suit. If I performed in a comedy club a suit would look like would look like I was old school and trying too hard. Yeah. So if I perform in a comedy club it would be jeans and a shirt. It might be a loud shirt or a t-shirt depending on the club. Uh, if I if I perform in a theatre, then it's normally a suit. You know, you don't you don't want to, you don't want to overdress or underdress, do you, when you perform? That's almost my thinking. Yeah, you want to fit the context of the. Situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think in a comedy club you you want to appear like you're one of them, but in a theatre you want to appear like you, you know, you're somebody a bit special. I don't know, I don't yeah. know why, but it seems to work. <laughs> well, you don't want to. I mean, that's that's one of those things where when you sit down, the audience immediately looks at you and, and makes decisions about who you are. And if your dress doesn't match their expectation of what the performer yeah, yeah, yeah. is supposed to look like, they're yeah. immediately taken out of it. Yeah, anything that stops them, that makes them think. You want to stop them thinking and just enjoy. And anything that makes them go, hang on a minute, why do you do that? I was aware that the very first show I did last night, I was just a little bit too fast. I went out just a bit too fast and I was aware that they the weren't quite tuned into my voice. I could tell just certain punchlines didn't get quite what they're not. And that made me a little bit nervy right at the beginning, which mm-hmm. made me nervous 
when your nerves you go a bit faster. So, and I had to. I hadn't gone into it long. It was. I hadn't. It was. I hadn't actually started doing the envelope trick. So it was just the beginning bit about me playing the ukulele and, the, and doing the father in the blender bit. And um, and I I, I, would, I consciously I just had to pause and think, slow down. You know, they're not getting it. And then it was fine. But uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to be aware of that. To the course correction. Yeah, yeah, just aware that the you know things are getting in the way of the audience, like the suit or what you're wearing or just the fact that they don't understand you or you're mumbling too much or you're going too fast. Mm-hmm. How do you? How long did it take for you to develop that skill to be able to read the audience like that? I think I've always done that. I think I've always. I think it's a really important thing to listen to the audience. It's amazing how many acts are not in the room that perform, but they're not in the room. I, I, uh, I saw John Armstrong perform twice this week. I saw him perform in the Pella, and I thought I saw him perform informally down near the uh, near the thingy bar, the old um, Hatton Air. Hatton Air. Uh, and the one thing I noticed about him that I think has changed since the last time I saw him work, really, which is quite a few years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago is he seems much more aware of the audience now than he used to be. And you could tell he was just much more solid, you know. Sometimes sometimes we just sort of have the head down and they're doing the lines and they're looking at the people and they're not aware that the audience aren't quite tuned in or, you know, haven't quite got something yet. Uh, or something's happening that you need to address, you know, in the room. Um, so, I mean, like last night a woman, the, the I don't know, it was the second or third show, she just was just getting a a little bit vocal at certain points you know and it's just being aware of that and thinking when do I address it and how do I address it and you know uh, where some people won't you know they're just not they just carry on through they're not aware they're not aware somebody's spilt the drink and everybody's looking you know mm-hmm. you know or they are aware and they don't deal with it so so I always try to be in the room and listen you know now and again you get a laugh but there's a slight groan with it and you, you, you know you think well Am I going to just put a topper on that line to to eliminate that groan? So sometimes, if I get if I get if I get a guy up to help me with the um, Laura Buxton trick, the two deck trick, mm-hmm. I normally try and get a guy that's small because I do a joke about do you work out, and then I laugh and say I know you don't. Um, so I want somebody small. If they're too young, the audience feel a bit awkward about me bullying them. Yeah. So so when I do, you know, I've got a line about you know. You've got wonderful eyes and wonderful ears. Uh, they're not quite in the right place, but close enough. You could always get a job on Star Trek. Um, when I do that, you could have laughed then. It would have helped. But when I, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes if I, I do that, the audience, you'll get some laughter and you'll get that, oh, like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have a thing where I just turn to them and say, don't get all American on me. Yeah, you, you know? use that. And yeah, the and, and, and that's nice because um, it's sort of, and to be honest, you know, an American doing it in, in the UK would have the same thing. Oh, don't get all, you know, don't get all British on me. Because we're all the same. We've all got this PC thing that we're aware of. Yeah. But as soon as you do that, it lets them know you're aware of what's going on. It lets them know that, you know, it's just a joke. Yeah. And it also just gives them a little slap on the wrist. Come on, don't be silly. We're just having fun. Um, but it's just, it's just listening. It's listening to what happens in the laugh. And, you know, and also just, you know, Sometimes, you know, you'll do something and the laugh will go longer than you think and you just have to wait. And some people don't wait. You know, they plow on with the next line and waste it. 
Yeah. Or the, the joke doesn't get as much of a laugh as you thought, and you've got to be creating with the next line and move on so there's not an awkward gap after the laugh. Mm-hmm. So you always have to be listening to the to the audience. Be aware of what's going on. You know, if people are distracted by something, if it's too hot, if it's too cold, if, you know, somebody's... Doing, a million things that could be going on that you're aware of and you either have to deal with or choose to ignore or, you know, whatever. Uh, and I think that's a big thing that a lot of a lot of guys don't do. A lot of guys are just not in the room. They, How do you practice that? How do you get good at it? Uh, I don't know. You just do it. I mean, you just... I don't know if there's a way of practicing it. I try and always make sure that I, I, I'm always looking around the whole audience rather than... I'm using my finger now. I don't know why I'm doing that. Um, but, you know, look up to the back, look down at the front, to the sides, into the middle, back up to the back. Constantly looking just to see them. Um, uh, and then just listening. But I don't, I don't know how you practice doing it other than doing it, really. Mm-hmm. You know... Um, Maybe one, I suppose what you could do is you could video, you could video your act and then, and then watch it back and see whether you're aware. Another good thing to sometimes do, um, is, is to video the audience while you're performing. So like a little GoPro just to one side, video yourself, but also video the audience. And you can just watch, watch them side by side and, you know, and, and see the moments when they're looking down and texting on the phone and the moment where they're, you know, leaning into each other to say, you know, did you leave the oven on? You know, you can you can see all those moments. You can see the moments when they're all wide-eyed. You can see when they're, you know, they're sort of the faces just sag and they're just disinterested. You can see all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to do that in real time. I'm looking, you know, I can, you know, and I, I can see the ones who would, you know, have got flat, disinterested faces. Now, sometimes that's just that's not a bad thing. That's just who they are that you know yeah. I have that type of face when I'm watching comedy I'm terrible I just sort of sit there going, you know, and I don't have much emotion on my face at all even though I can be really enjoying it I'm, I'm a terrible audience member for a comedian I, I sort of analyse it and then afterwards I'll go oh that was great I loved it now and again somebody will get me laughing out loud and once I start laughing out loud that's great and it'll keep going yeah but um, but yeah just just you know maybe video them and video you and have a look at it afterwards but the main thing is just to constantly keep listening and looking at them while you're working. Yeah. Isn't that funny how the more comedy you see and the more funny things that you do, you you appreciate something as being funny, but it doesn't make you laugh. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's kind of the same thing as watching a magic trick yeah, yeah. once you're a magician. Yeah. It's like when you tell somebody you're funny and they go, that's funny. And you go, well, why aren't you laughing? <laughs> you know what I mean? You'll tell somebody, I did this and the sun's out and they go, oh, that's funny. Yeah. You're not laughing. I feel like... I feel like that's what Lauren Michaels is. He personifies that. He, yeah. He produces Saturday Night Live. All right. Okay. Yeah. I feel like he's he's probably that guy because there's lore of him just being this like chain smoking man in the shadows that yeah. has made tens of comedians' careers, probably yeah. hundreds of them. But yeah. uh, what what do you do if you lose the audience? How do you handle that? Uh, well, you just. You just try and you just try and get them back. I mean, if you get them at the start, you've got to do you've got to do something really bad to lose them, really. Mm-hmm. You know, you've um, you've got to really be you know either really be nasty to somebody and just they start disliking you, or you've suddenly got to be really really unfunny. So if I get them at the start, I think it's highly unlikely I'll lose them. Sure. 
Uh, it's more likely that I don't really get them at the start and then I lose them. Um, and all, all you can do is, is try and get them back. Sometimes I'm aware that certain audiences um, like certain types of material more than others. Um, so you know, you, you, you'll sometimes find an audience really like the visual stuff more than the more than the verbal stuff. Mm -hmm. So you know, I'll, 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 if I'm aware of that, I'll notice that they laugh much more when I'm pull faces. I might start pulling more faces because I'm aware that I've have noticed that. But you know, uh, and certain certain uh, foreign audiences can be like that for me. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think where I was recently, and. I was aware that they laughed much more when I was doing all the visual stuff. I'm trying to think where I was. It was abroad somewhere. Um, it doesn't really matter anyway. But you know, they they, they, they understood English, but um, it, they didn't. You know, they weren't. It wasn't their native language. Yeah. But I did notice that. You know, when I did visual stuff and uh, was a bit louder, that they appreciated that more. So yeah, just try and change it, or just you know, just die gracefully. Yeah, you know, sometimes when you just you're just gonna you're just gonna have bad gigs, you know. And I've had I've had them, and I've I've got there and known from the start that I'm not gonna have a good gig. I look at the venue, they tell me what the situation is, and I go, "There's no way I'm gonna be able to make this work." You know, I've been asked to perform while a buffet's on, while people at the buffet, a billionaire, he was a billionaire, booked me to perform at Glen Eagles Hotel, which is. You know, really like brilliant golf course hotel. And when I got there, the agent said he wants you to perform uh, thirty minutes while while they're having the buffet. I said that's a nightmare. And they had buffet stations in the middle of the table. That was big. The the main room, the grand hall at the Glen Eagles Hotel, massive big chandeliers, big tables, high stage. You know, quite away from the audience. And I went out and I got introduced off stage with a microphone introduction and I came out and nobody was looking at me and they were all getting food. There was an ice cream station right in front of the stage that were queuing up for that. I was looking down at them. You know, I was trying my best. I was trying to make notes about what was going on. How's the ice cream? Oh, nothing, you know, yeah. looked up. Got somebody out in the audience from one of the loudest tables. I thought if I get that guy, that table sort of half watched me, half laughing, but couldn't really hear what I was saying because it was just chaos in the room. Did the 30 minutes and went, you know. And the guy, funnily enough, that guy has just booked me again. Um, and he apologised. Um, he said, I'm sorry, I should never have put you up, you know, on in front. Will you come and do another thing for me? So I'm going to do another thing. That's but neat I'm, that he learned. Yeah, he learned. Actually, in between, he'd seen me somewhere else, apparently, and I'd stormed it. And, and, and I think he'd realised the difference was they weren't all queued up for food and eating while I was on. Yeah. But and I've had some things, you know, where, you know, I go on too late and the audience are too drunk, you know, and, and they're just all at the bar at the back and nobody sat in the tables anymore. And you're going to get those and you sort of, I mean, those gigs, you, you, you know, you're almost just getting, you're just getting paid to, to die, you know, you're getting, you know, like a gladiator, you're just getting paid to put up with it, really. Um, yeah, I mean, you can try and... You can try and change things. I always try and say, look, put me on earlier, put me on, you know, the, the audience will have a better time if you put me on before the food, give them a good mood. But of course then they can't because, you know, they say, well, the food's all time to go out at this time. And then 
you know, well, put me on straight after the food before the speeches. Oh well, we want the speeches first. Yeah. So, yeah, you can't win them all. Die gracefully. I like that. Mm-hmm. Die gracefully and take the money. GTFM. Hmm. Uh, do your kids appreciate what you do? Do they think it's neat? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, they've grown up now, so. My daughter's 30, I've got a son who's 28, 29, another son who's 26. And uh, I think when they were young, you know, they didn't like the fact that I was away from home so much, perhaps. But I think they always thought it cool that their dad was a comedy magician. And I think they'll, I think they quite like the idea now. I think so. I hope so. Do they, uh, do they have kids of their own or your grandfather? I am now. Just recently, I've got... Congratulations. Um, six months, thank you. Six months ago, my, uh, I had two within 11 days of each other. So my daughter uh, gave birth to a son, and then 11 days later, my daughter in law gave birth to another son. So I've got two grandkids that are around about six months old now. So that's good. Uh, I quite like that. I'm looking forward to, you know, when they're a bit older and I could pull coins out of their ear and all of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do the Williamson thing, just drag them around and shout at them. <laughs> Wear them like <laughs> clothing. That's funny. Well, that's cool. That's really cool. What does that, what does that feel like? Uh, you know, it's totally different having kids, having grandkids. Somebody, somebody told me, they said, when you have kids, um, you love your kids, but when you have grandkids, you're in love with them. That's the difference. Um, and I've only had them six months now, so... But I sort of understand that, because you've got no responsibility to bring them up. You've got no responsibility to, to particularly do anything for them. You can just really just enjoy them. So they are, you know, you do just fall in love with them, as opposed to your kids where you love them, but you've got to discipline them and you've got to... You know, there's a whole different thing going on with kids that isn't going on with grandkids. Um, so, so, yeah, it's great. And just, you know, I mean, they're, on, they're still on... I can't wait till they start, you know crawling around and having personalities and they laugh now and I can make them laugh but I love just you know trying to make them giggle and sing stupid songs play the ukulele to them that's fun yeah yeah it's good no I like it a lot yeah you always worry yeah, so you, you know at a certain point you think oh, I don't want to be a grandfather it sounds so old and then when you get to that point where it's about to happen you think actually it's really cool I can't wait you know, yeah sort of it's funny how it's funny how Life gets you ready for every phase of your life, you know. So when, you, when you're young, you think, oh, I don't want to be married, or I don't want to do that. And then you get to a certain age where you think, I'd like to be married. And then you think, I don't want kids. And then you get to a certain phase, you think, oh, kids would be great, and you have kids, and it's great. You know, um, yeah. So, yeah, I quite enjoy I quite enjoy the aging process. It was really great. I was chatting to um, Johnny Thompson yesterday or the day before. Who's that? Johnny Thompson. <laughs> Are we recording? <laughs> yeah, he's in the uh, he's in the uh, late parlor, early part, early close, close up. Yeah, yeah, re- <coughs> we can edit that out. Mm-hmm. But I was chatting to him, and he's what eighty something. I don't know exactly how old he is. Eighty three. Is he eighty three? Yeah. Yep. And he went down. How old are you, John? And I said, uh, I don't do a very good impression, so as you can tell. <laughs> and I said, I'm fifty seven, Johnny. He went, Wow, I'd love to be so young. <laughs> and I, I thought, yeah, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? You know, 
You know, I speak to people who are like approaching 30 and they go, oh, I'm just getting so old. You know, no, you're not. You know, we always think we're old. We yeah. always think we're old, don't we? After, you know, we, once we get past about 21, 22, you start thinking you're old, don't you? You start thinking, I'm getting on. I mean, you, you might not be quite there yet, but I'm I, you, I got there. You know, you'll get to 30 and you'll think, oh man, I'm 30. And honestly, when you get to 40, you look back and think 30 was so young. And when you get to 50, you'll look back at 40 and say, it was, you know, so it's pointless worrying about it. You yeah. know, just enjoy where you are. Just, you know, you're as young as you're ever going to be now. <laughs> right now is the youngest you're ever going to be for the rest of your life. So Enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And work out what bloody act you're going to do, fella. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sick, I'm sick of you telling people on these podcasts that you don't perform. I want to hear about when you did The Castle. That's the podcast I want to hear. I want to hear a podcast where somebody interviews you about your first week at The Castle. Fuck, calling me out. <laughs> That's my biggest fear, is the, the imposter syndrome of it. Because I think about that constantly, as I have this thing where I tell people how to do something that I don't really do. Oh, I know. Well, we're all doing that. People ask me about comedy, and I, I feel a little bit like, well, there are people who know more about comedy than I do. And uh, and when you suddenly people make you into an expert about stuff, it's frightening because the more you know about it, you know, it is that the um, Dunning Kruger thing. You yeah. Know, the people who know a little about stuff think they know more about it, and the people who know a lot about it think they know less. And so, you know. The more I get to know about it, the less I think I know about it. So when I get asked about it, I think, oh, you know, I hope I'm not. There's going to be people listening to think he's a fraud. What does he know about comedy? There's bound to be. There's be somebody out there who thinks, you know, why is he talking to John Archer? Uh, but you just got to get over it, you know. Yeah. As long as you know enough to make people think you've done some good, haven't you? I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think so. You have. I appreciate that. And there'll be some point in the future when I'll be listening to this podcast in my car. Are you going to listen to this episode? Yeah, mainly. I just want to find out which bits you cut out. None of it. Right. <laughs> Are you going to cut out that bit about the two prostitutes in York with um, Robert De Niro and Luke Jamea? Are you going to cut that out? No. Great. So you may as well tell the story again. <laughs> no, I'm not telling it again. It was a mistake the first time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I I've been thinking. Uh, Jack Goldfinger recently met me again, <laughs> mm. uh, and this time I was introduced by someone else instead of me just meeting him. And so he was like, "Oh, send me a tape, you know, mm. do the close-up room." So with that invitation, I, I've been thinking about it. I have a pretty cool idea for something that I think is interesting. That goes back to what I well, think. About how long that. is it in the closet room? 18 minutes? Yeah, 18, 20 minutes. Yeah. You could do that. Yeah, I could do that. But again, it, it goes back to what I said earlier about like, you know, I'm in this position where I sit around and I tell people things. Uh, and then it's so vulnerable to go and try and do the thing. Yeah, but you, you know what? You, you won't be unique to be a person in magic who tells everybody how to do it and they can't actually do it themselves. <laughs> but that's my biggest fear. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of people in magic like that. Um, yeah, but do you know what? <laughs> Doing it, you'll learn a little bit more so that you will be in a better position to people to tell people. So Yeah. You're being honest anyway. You're being honest with people saying, look, you know. I've got lots of thoughts on it, but I've never actually done it, and it scares me, and I might not do it. So I don't think anybody's going to think of you as a fraud because you've never said, "Hey, 
I know how to perform. You've, you've just said, I know what I like. I don't think you've ever said, you've always just said, you know what you like and you know what you don't like. And you've just given opinions on stuff. So that's all right. Just do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I want to. I, I really, I really do want to. I really do. It's the only, it's the only way you learn is, is performing. And the castle's great. You know, 20 odd, I mean, close-up room, it's four performances, isn't it, for seven days. That's 28 performances, isn't it? Yeah. In 28 performances, everything can change from first performance to last performance. I've been I've been very fortunate this week to go basically every night and yeah, see yeah. how just the little tweaks and yeah. the performers get a little more comfortable in the room. And mm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's good. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm not going to try. I'm going to do it, but uh, it's just getting to the thing. Okay, when are you going to do it? Why don't we commit now to a time frame? God damn it. Uh, I will send Jack a tape by the end of the year. The end of the year? Yeah. Come on. I, have, I don't have anything. It's August. I don't have anything yet. Yeah, send him a tape by the end of October. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You heard it first, ladies and gentlemen. End of October. And you can't edit that bit out. Okay. End of October, <laughs> you'll send Jack a tape. And, and you'll be working the castle sometime next year. Sounds good. Okay. Woo! <laughs> That's what I need. That's what this is for. This is this whole whole podcast is just selfish. It's therapy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's therapy it's and it's therapy. selfish to get me to do things that I ought to do but I'm afraid to do. Yeah, I think you'll do it. I appreciate that. Sorry. Right. I'm just gonna bug you though. I'm gonna be like, "What do I do, Johanna?" <laughs> there are better than me the people you can ask. Um, I know, but now this is your fault. That's what yeah. that's what I'm gonna say during the show. If you don't like this, it's John Archer's fault. Yeah, well, I don't mind that. I don't mind taking the blame for your crap show. Um, I'll happily do that. Yeah, that'll be fun. Oh, I'll get Paul Wilson to give me a breakdown. <laughs> oh God! All right. Okay, sounds good. I've got an eye in a pe- I've got a sore pair of trousers up now. Okay, well we'll finish up. Uh, I feel pretty good. Oh shit, that second hour went by real fast. Cool. Um, what's a what's your favorite film? Uh, I've got lots of favorite films, but I almost go back to It's a Wonderful Life, James Stewart. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jimmy Stewart. James Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Juju's pedals. Um, yeah, I love, I love that. I love the story. I just, I just love that concept that a guy who never really achieves what he wants to achieve still makes a massive difference to people in his life. It's just, you know, that, that thing of, you know, you don't realise how many people you're touching just by, you know, trying to do things right. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I love that. I love it. I cry every time I watch it. I cry now, just right at the start. I cry. I cry as soon as uh, his his brother falls into the water and he jumps in to save him and goes death. Sort of. Uh, that's the first time I go. And uh, there's a few moments. It's just yeah, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. But you know, lots of others. I think Jaws is an amazing film. You know, um, lots of great movies. But it, that's my favourite. If people ever ask. There's nothing that's come along that's changed my mind on it yet. Wow. Uh, favorite show you've done? Um, that's an awful question. <laughs> it is. It is. You know what? Because you have favorites for lots of different reasons. Yeah. You, know, you have favorites like, wow, wow, that was an amazing place to perform in. 
there it's because wow that was a really good gig yeah I think one of my favourite gigs was probably performing at Penn and Teller's Theatre as my prize for fooling them yeah because you know there was it was jam packed full and then I was aware that like Chris Kenner and Matt King and everybody they'd come in at the end of the show just to see me and Ben and uh you know, and it felt great, and it went really well, and sort of, you know, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was fantastic. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, so yeah, that's probably one of them. But like I said, there's lots of favourite gigs for lots of different reasons, and a lot of them you just forget as well. You know, you have great gigs, and then they just, you know, they just happen to be three or four weeks old, and it's just another great gig. Yeah. But at the time, you sort of think, wow, that was fantastic, fantastic. Got the hiccups saying that didn't work. Fantastic! Yeah, I said it. Here we go. I'll edit out that part. For you. No, no, don't want to leave the hiccups in. That's probably <laughs> the best bit. <sighs> oh, I should have started recording. Oh, uh, uh, are, we, are we not recording yet? <laughs> I don't think should so. we make some coffee and stop? <laughs> we should, yeah. Um, and then, let's see, what are the other ones? Favorite book? Non-magic book? Oh, I don't read a lot of non-magic books. Uh, well, I do read non-magic books, but not fictional books. Um, that's fine I really liked um, Steve Martin's Born Standing Up I really enjoyed that it's phenomenal yeah. great great little book um, and then I like you know I've got a set of books at home called How Things Work mm. volumes one and two interesting I like them but I don't read I don't read fiction at all really I tend to read factual, factual books I'll read life stories and you know biographies and Interesting psychological books and things like that, but How I, come? I don't know. I just, I, I just, I love films. I can sit and watch a film and get straight into it. But uh, fiction, uh, I think I probably just haven't got the the patience to to just uh, non-fiction books. You can dip in and out of, and you get something out of them straight away. Whereas fiction, you sort of have to commit yourself you have, to the yeah, whole. Yeah, you have to, to invest whole, more. Yeah, and I, I'm just, yeah, I'm just not. I'm not a naturally great reader, you know. I like magic books, I've got loads of magic books, but, uh, yeah, non-magic books, not a lot really. Very cool. And then, of course, uh, what was the hardest time you were ever fooled? Or your favorite? When did you feel the biggest, like, moment of astonishment? Totally just blew your mind. Well, I'll tell you what it was. It didn't totally blow my mind. Actually, just recently at Chris Kenner's party, I met that guy who was doing the one-handed... Vincent. Vincent, is that his name? Yeah. Doing the one-handed cube restore. And it looked like trick photography. Yeah. And I asked to see that three or four times. I just thought, I cannot understand how you're doing that. It was amazing. But the story I always tell, really, is the first time I saw Harry Blackstone Jr. do his light light bulb floating. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was at an IBM, my first ever magic convention, the IBM 50th British Ring um, in Southport. In It'll be about 30 years ago because my, my wife was pregnant with my daughter then. And my wife came with me. It's the only magic convention she's ever come to with me. I think she realised she wasn't into magic conventions after that. Uh, and I had seats in the, for the gala show and I wasn't too far back and Harry Blackson came on and did the floating light bulb it floated over my head and he was wandering letting people look at it uh, and that was like you know I had a rough idea I knew what was going on but I couldn't work out exactly how it was working um, but I just loved 
I just loved the moment of just seeing that thing, this green light bulb just floating around the theatre, you know, just under his control and just yeah. thinking, ah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. So that's one of my favourite bits of theatrical magic I've watched, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, you watch. I, I don't. I don't get amazed by anything on television anymore because I don't trust television. Sure. You know, I just watch it and I just think, well, I don't know what I'm seeing anymore. I don't know what's real there, what isn't. I don't know who's who's in on it, who isn't in on it. I mean, it's great television for for non magicians, but from a magician's point of view, when we sort of know how things work, you just sort of think, well, I, I can't really tell whether you're good. Yeah. I really can't tell whether you're doing a mason slide of hand or you know stop the camera and move that and did this. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't really get a buzz out of television magic in the same way that I did when I'd watch the Copperfield shows. Yeah. You know, and I'd watch stuff like that. Um, yeah. I can't really think of uh, anything recent on television that's really amazed me or fooled me. Sure. Now and again, you know, I'll see, <coughs> you know, I'll see, I'll see somebody who's really good with cards or really good with coins, and they'll do something and. and and I'll see it live, you know. I watch Ben Earl do some stuff. Yeah. You know, I love what Ben does and, you know, and different people, yeah. And then and then also comedically, I went, whoa, there goes the table again. You know, I went and saw David Williamson in that Circus 1903. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, you know, he didn't fool me with anything, but I was still mesmerised by the way he just handled that whole situation with the kids and the comedy and the, just making it all run smooth, the way he held the whole show together. Loved it. So I still get plenty of moments like that where I just really enjoy the, the entertainment value rather than the actual fooling. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That thank was beautiful. You. Thank you. And I appreciate you challenging me like that. Okay. So uh, end of October, you'll have had a tape to Jack. Yep. And you'll be trying to get him to book you. I mean, you might hate the tape and you can't get booked. <laughs> <laughs> but assume that he goes, yeah, that's all right. Then we'll see you in the castle sometime next year. And you'll do a podcast about it. Yeah. Of your experience of the week. Can't wait. It'll be great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash magical thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels, and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.